following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Normally, I preach from a special text on the first Sunday of every year. I preach basically a New Year's message. And I want to offer you the same this morning. But rather than pulling a text from somewhere else, uh, looking at the Luke series and where we are in it, I actually felt like the text that we are on in the Luke series was very appropriate for the theme that I wanted to cover for a New Year's message. And so what we're going to do is continue on in the Gospel of Luke from where we left off. And as I also do uh, almost every year at the first Sunday service, uh, I want to look back as a quote sort of year in review of the previous year and what went on. And usually I do this by showing you the Google video, the Zeitgeist video. Uh, but this year I decided I would show you a bit of a different one that's uh, produced by Facebook instead. Okay, And so go ahead and just look at this brief couple-minute video, and then we'll go on with the sermon. It's always amazing to think back at how much can transpire in one short year, isn't it? Uh, two, not just one, but two terrorist attacks in Paris, the Syrian refugee crisis that is uh, turning Europe upside down, uh, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage, uh, more mass shootings in America this year than there are days of the year. It's unbelievable. Um, it's been an amazing, eventful year of uh, demonstrating just how volatile life is. But that's from a global perspective. I want to ask you, what happened in your life specifically in 2015? Uh, maybe for you, 2015 was a pretty significant year. Maybe it's going to go down for you as a very important year where a lot of important things happen. Or maybe the truth is 2015 just felt like a blur. Didn't feel really special at all. Every day just sort of blended into the next until before you know it, it was another New Year's celebration. Um, although technically New Year's is not a holiday in the Christian calendar, um, I think it's actually a very important holiday for Christians to observe. And, and that's because it's so easy to become so consumed with dealing with what is just right in front of your face, right? Um, just trying to survive another day that often we, we never pause to look at where we've been coming from or where we are going. And my sincere hope is that every new year, all of us as a church family would just take a moment to pause and to consider what God has been doing in our lives in this past year. And then prayerfully considering what that may mean for the year that we've just invited in. Have you had that moment in the midst of all the parties and celebration to take that pause in your life? Just to stop and consider, where am I right now? What's going on in my life, in my family, in my work, 
the people I love. Well, that's what I want to do this morning through this text in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. And so I want to look at that scripture, and then we'll take a look at what the lessons are from this text. It reads, starting in verse 18, And a ruler asked him, speaking of Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we put a close to another year and as we invite a new year, we just want to take that pause Take a moment to reflect on what's going on in our lives. What is the season that we're going through right now? Give us a discerning spirit to recognize what you are trying to say to us and to be able to surrender to that will that you have for us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our story begins when a man approaches Jesus with this question, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Now, we've seen through this series in Luke's gospel that there have been leaders who have approached Jesus in the past, asking what appeared to be an innocent question, but was really just a trap in disguise to try to catch him in his own words. But that doesn't seem to be what is going on in this story this morning. By all accounts, this ruler was asking Jesus a genuine question. He really seemed desperate to know what he needed to do in order to be saved. It's interesting how he phrases the question. Because he says, what do I have to do in order to be saved? His focus was totally on his actions. How do I get into heaven? I mean, if you translate the question literally, as literally as you can, what he is actually saying is, having done what will I inherit eternal life? In other words, what is required of me? What do I have to do after which I will then be granted eternal life? In other words, he was totally trapped in this legalistic thinking of his day. Believing that you have to do something 
in order to earn your salvation. What's interesting, Jesus says to him first, why do you call me good? Because that's a description that only should be used of God alone. Now, it's obvious that this ruler calls Jesus good as a sort of a polite courtesy. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to press him on something much deeper. He says, you know, you should only call God good, and yet you've called me good. And in essence, what it seems to be, what Jesus seems to be doing is saying to him, so if you should only call God good, do you still want to call me good? Is that the way you want to address me? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, who do you think I am? Am I just a teacher to you? Why do you call me good? And then he goes on and he says, basically, he recites the Ten Commandments. Now, he doesn't give all ten of them, but by the list that he gives, it's clear that that's what Jesus' point is. In other words, if you want to play by the rules of what you must do to be saved, here are the terms. Obey God's law perfectly. Don't break a single command. What's interesting to me is this man is not intimidated by Jesus' response. He doesn't put his arms on and he goes, oh, well, if you put it that way, then what, what do you want me to do? Instead, in verse 21, he replies to Jesus, all of this I have kept from my youth. He says to Jesus, I did it. I'm good with that. I've obeyed the law. You see, under the leadership of the Pharisees, the Jews had a way of keeping the law of God in a way that they felt they could go to bed with a clear conscience. And the way they did it is that they reduced or limited or narrowed the focus of the command to the point where it became doable. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, they said, who is my neighbor, right? Meaning, how in the world can I possibly love my neighbor? Well, the way I can do it is by so narrowly defining neighbor to only include people I like. And then when I do that, I'm obedient to the law of God. And so this guy looks and he says, you know what, God? Well, you know what, Jesus? I've done it all. I've kept all the commandments. Ever since I was a little kid, I have been faithful. In other words, this man believes he has kept his end of the bargain, his contract with God by obeying all of God's commands. But by, to show him how actually far he is from that obedience, Jesus says to him, well, you know, you did a pretty good job here. I'm going to give you an A-. minus, But one thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven come and follow me. You see, Jesus knew that there was something that held this man's heart even more than his devotion to God. It was his material wealth because as we're told, he was exceedingly wealthy. In other words, Jesus exposes that his love of money was greater than his love for God. So he says, sell everything and come follow me. It's at this point that he finally loses this guy. In verse 23, when the rich ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely 
rich. It's very clear that this man came to Jesus looking for salvation, but walked away from his encounter with him, disappointed, and not only disappointed, but unsaved. Unsaved. He didn't find the salvation that he was looking for that day. Now, that's the story in a nutshell. I want to unpack it a bit and draw some lessons from it. And I want to draw the lessons primarily by making some observations from this story that really, in truth, ought to disturb us if we really understand what's being said here. The first is this, that Jesus taught a gospel very different from the one that is preached by many today. Jesus taught a gospel that doesn't have much similarity with the one preached in many churches today. Based on the events of the story that we just saw, I don't know, it's very tempting to want to come to the conclusion that Jesus was not very good at evangelism. I mean, if a neighbor or coworker approached you like this rich young ruler approached Jesus, I don't know, would you have screwed it up? And would you have let him walk away unsaved that day? I mean, imagine if one of your neighbors came to you and said, Hey, man, uh, I've been trying my best to live the best life I can. But I just feel like there's this nagging emptiness in my life that I just don't know what it is. And I know you're a Christian. I know you go to that church in Schaumburg every Sunday. And so I was wondering if you could tell me how to be saved. Would you mess that up? (laughs) I mean, if only our neighbors came to us like that. It's like you're being served on a silver platter, this guy's soul. You're, You're being given a softball, a floater. Even a newbie Christian could knock that one out of the park and hit a home run. But Jesus blew it. He blew it. Here was a guy that appeared to be one inch from the gates of heaven. And Jesus scared him away and sent him away disappointed. Or the question is this. Are we the ones who are not giving others an honest picture of what it means to follow Jesus? Kyle Eidelman, we looked at his Not a Fan series in our community group retreats a couple years ago, um, said this, I wanted to make Jesus look as attractive as possible so that people would come to find eternal life in him. I was offering the people Jesus, but I was handing out a lot of free bread. In the process, I cheapened the gospel. Imagine it this way. Imagine that my oldest daughter turned 25. She isn't married, but she really wants to be. I decide I'm going to help make that that happen. So imagine I take out an ad in the newspaper, put up a billboard sign, and make up t-shirts begging someone to choose her. I even offer some attractive gifts as incentives. Doesn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem that whoever came to her would be doing her a favor? Too often in my preaching, I have tried to talk people into following Jesus. I wanted to make following him as appealing, comfortable, and convenient as possible. 
That really shines a light in the way that we present the gospel in our day, isn't it? In our desire to see people saved, are we painting a picture of the Christian life that Jesus himself never promised his followers? The second observation that ought to disturb us is this. Being religious can look so much like being saved. Being religious can look so similar to being saved. You see, those who witnessed this encounter with this rich young ruler and Jesus, when they saw him walk away disappointed, they didn't high-five one another and said, Jesus nailed another hypocrite. Busted. Their reaction was of utter shock and disbelief at what they had just witnessed. If this guy is not saved, who in the world can be saved was their reaction. If even a guy like this is not going to be in heaven, what chance do any of us stand in the way that Jesus is proclaiming his gospel? As I was preparing this message, I thought about it like this. If the rich, this exact same man were alive today and was attending ICC, I wonder how many of us would even entertain the thought that he may not be saved and that he is in need of Jesus. Here is the truth that I think is hard for us to face. If this rich young ruler were alive in our day, I think the truth is he would be made an elder at many of our churches. As someone who religiously kept the law, that meant he gave at least, at least 20% of his income to the church. 20%. That does not strike me as a guy that I would describe as greedy or struggling with materialism. I mean, do any of us even come close to that? Giving 20% of our earnings for the kingdom of God? I think the truth is most of us wouldn't even dare question this man's devotion to God. But Jesus says, it's not enough. What you have defined as the righteous life is not enough. Because here is the other disturbing truth about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't ask for religious devotion, but demands total surrender. Jesus doesn't ask for religious devotion, but demands total surrender. Now, I'm getting to the part that troubles the most people about this passage. Because read in a certain way, what it sounds like Jesus is saying is, if you want to be saved... You have to basically sell all of your worldly possessions before you can follow him. I mean, at face value, that's what it sounds like he's saying, doesn't it? Now, this can't be the case because clearly there are other people that are saved in Scripture that didn't sell all their worldly possessions before they followed Jesus. 
So then what is going on here? That's at the heart of this story, isn't it? Why is Jesus picking on this one poor guy then? It's like Jesus woke up on the wrong side of the cot that morning. And he was just in a bad mood. And so this guy says, what can I do to be saved? And he says, I'm not asking this of anyone else, but just you? Sell everything and come and follow me. Oh, you can't do it? Then just get out of here. This is the question that has to be answered to understand the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus commanded him to sell everything in order to show him that he had a rightful claim to everything that belonged to him. That he had total authority over his life. That there was nothing that was off limits if he wanted to follow Jesus and be saved. In other words, this is the part that we cannot get around when we see the teaching of Jesus. Our commitment to him must be total. The author of the famous Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis, when he was an undergrad student at the University of Oxford, was a diehard atheist. And it's interesting, you know, he says he came across a lot of Christians that he actually liked, but he said none of them made him want to become a Christian, at least at that point in his life. It's, it's funny the way he describes it. He says, you know, I like bears, but I don't feel the need to go to a zoo to see them. In the same way he says, you know, Christians are okay people, but I don't feel the need to go to church. And this is what he confessed when he looked back at that period of his life. He said, when I thought about religion, when I thought about Christianity and the claims of Christianity, it made my stomach turn in knots thinking about what God would demand of me if I were to follow him. He understood the implications of Christianity, of the teachings of Jesus. And he said, I just can't go there. I can't do that. In his own words, Lewis says, There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, which one can surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And, there was what I, and that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. In other words, no trespassing. Keep out, stay away, don't touch this. But Lewis realized, if I become a Christian, I can't do that. There can't be any area of my life where I tell to God, stay out, keep away. And so Lewis confesses, I hoped desperately that God did not exist because he could not bear the thought of not being in control of his own life, of not living life under his own terms. And I wonder if you could identify with Lewis's struggle this morning. Have you laid it all on the altar? Does Christ have total control of your life? Philip Ryken says this. Why is it that we are so quick to put all kinds of qualifiers on this verse and to insist that Jesus does not command all Christians everywhere to sell all their possessions? Why do we secretly hope that Jesus won't tell us 
to sell what we have and give it to the poor, but will tell us to do something else instead. Very likely it is because we would be unable to pass the same simple test. If we have to sell everything we had to inherit eternal life, would we be able to do it? If not, then we are in the same spiritual trouble the ruler was in. How does this make you feel right now? (laughs) Do you feel a little discouraged? A little hopeless? Because I think that's how the people witnessing that encounter with the rich young ruler felt that day. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses this occasion to teach the crowd just how difficult, not just difficult, but how utterly impossible salvation appears to be when viewed through the perspective of human effort. And it's clear that the people got the message that day because they tell him, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus brought them to the most important truth that they needed to grasp that day. The life God demands is impossible by our own strength, but is possible in his power. In other words, grace doesn't mean that Jesus lowers the bar so that everyone can just walk right over it easily. But he empowers us to cross what looks like an unclimbable mountain to every one of us. You look at the cost of discipleship. You look at the radical demands of Jesus and you say, I can't do that. There's no way. I'm not that good. I mean, I may be able to put a heroic effort for a week or two, but I know myself too well. I know my nature. And it's going to catch up to me. You see, it's not until you come face to face with the impossibility of the Christian life that you even begin to understand the gospel. Until you understand that impossibility, here's the real danger, is you're likely to try to mimic the Christian life, just like this rich young ruler did. You do all of the outward trappings of religiosity, to try to fake it and make it look like, hey, I think I'm pretty close to the other guys that are at this church. I think I blend right in. At first, I didn't, but now I'm getting better. It's not until you confront the impossibility of the life that Jesus is asking of us that you finally come to that place of utter surrender. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Unless God does a work in my life. I cannot live that life. All I see is discouragement, not hope. All I feel is despair and hopelessness, not joy. It feels like bondage, not freedom. I need the work of God in my life to live the life he demands of me. It's interesting, in the years as I'm working 
as I was working as a doctor in the Chicago area leading up to the time when our family went to do our mission work in Africa back in 2004. I ended up with a lot of opportunities to share my story with my coworkers and my patients about our plans to uproot our life in America and relocate as a missionary in Africa. And every time I would share my plans, it would almost always come to this really awkward moment where I realized the person that I was talking to didn't know how to respond to that. So it was really like they kind of go, oh, and this is what they would usually say to me. They would say, oh, how noble of you. <laughs> that was the most common responses. How noble of you. And then they would usually say something like, I could never do that. I could never do that. Move to Africa where there's AIDS and malaria and all of those crazy diseases and civil wars. And whenever they would say that, it would just remind me what different worlds we're living in. Because when I thought about heading to Africa as a missionary, it had absolutely nothing to do with my nobility or anything good that I saw in myself. It was simply a response to the work of God in my life. It wasn't about me being a hero or thinking that I'm better than anybody else. It was what God had done in my life. The only courage that I had to bring my family to Africa was the courage that God gave me. The only hope that I had was the joy that, brought in my, that came in my life out of that obedience. Well, how exactly does this work? Well, if we look at how the passage closes, this is what happens. Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. How does Jesus give us the ability to surrender the things that are most precious to us in this life? By enabling us to put our hope not in this life, but in the one that is to come. Storing our treasure in heaven and not in this life. And then ultimately seeing that Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. And that is the secret. If we don't see the worthiness of Jesus, if we don't realize that he is the most precious gift of all, there is no way we can live this life and give up the things that he is asking us to give up. How did C.S. Lewis ultimately find God? Well, what Lewis tells us in his own autobiography is this. Ever since Lewis was a young boy growing up in Belfast in Ireland, he describes these moments of intense longing and desire that he would experience, sometimes when he's just playing outside in the field or sitting over a meal. It would just ignite something in his heart that he didn't know how to describe, that would often trigger a profound sense of loneliness, longing, hunger for something, someone, but he didn't know what. And so he began to chase after this feeling, trying to figure out, get to the root of it, 
what was driving this search within his heart. So Lewis, from a young boy until his 30s when he finally met God, experienced these longings that he couldn't quite understand until he finally met God in his 30s. And this is what Lewis writes in his own words. There suddenly arose in me, without warning, and as if from the depth not of years, but of centuries. It is difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. It was a sensation, of course, of desire. But desire for what? And before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again. Or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. It had only taken a moment of time, and in a certain sense, everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison. For much of his life, Lewis chased after these feelings. But when he finally came to believe in God, what he says is, he no longer found the desire to chase after it anymore. And the way Lewis explains it like this, He says, it was like I was lost in a forest. And every time that I saw a signpost pointing me to the way out, I was desperate for it. I clung to it as my lifeline. But once I actually found the road back home, those signposts suddenly became insignificant because I knew I was on the road back home. And what he says is these longings, these intense hungers within his heart We're all like signposts pointing to God. And when he finally found God, all of that longing was finally satisfied. And suddenly those cravings disappeared to a total peace and contentment with God. And I think that is the mystery that this rich young ruler couldn't understand, is his love for money was only a signpost pointing to a longing for God that he just couldn't understand. And so he walked away that day without salvation because he couldn't see that Jesus was his greatest treasure. Jesus was what he needed more than all of the things that he sought in his wealth. And that is the invitation to you and me this day. Where do you find your greatest treasure? Who do you see is your greatest reward? I want to spend some time as we close out reflecting on this this morning. And we're going to do things, something that we don't really typically do. But I'm going to have the ushers actually hand out a little half sheet to you that has two simple questions. And I want to spend about just six, seven minutes in a time of reflection right now, asking ourselves two very simple questions as we introduce the new year. And it is this. What areas of your life are you afraid to surrender to God? And then secondly, what would you like to see God do in your life in 2016? I want to actually practice this reflection a little bit together as a church family. And we're just going to give you some private time right now. Now, 
I'm not going to collect these sheets, or you're not going to put your name on it so that I could keep you accountable. You're going to hold on to these sheets and take them home with you. If you don't have a pen, the ushers will also give you a pen as well. But what I want to invite you to do right now is would you just take about five, six minutes to pray to God right now and say, Lord, these are the areas of my life that I'm actually terrified to surrender control over to you. I don't want to let go of these things. I want it to be on my terms. And could you maybe just write one or two things that God may be inviting you to surrender to? Because even as a Christian, we know that the surrender is a growth process. It doesn't happen overnight. There is a way that we can grow into the surrender. And then what would you like to see God do in your life in this year? What are the things that burden you? Maybe it's a prayer for a loved one that matters so much to you, but you know is really struggling right now. Maybe it's a secret sin that you just can't seem to break free from. I don't know what it may be, but I want you to reflect for a minute and write down, God, if there's anything bold that I want to ask of you in this coming year, this is what I want from you. Would you just take a moment to do that? And after you've written those things down, just take a few minutes to pray through them and just come before God and ask him for these things.